The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Uh, let me invite you to open with me in the scriptures to Luke chapter 1. You can find it on page 856 of a Bible in the Purack if you need to grab one, but do grab one. Uh, this is the fourth Sunday of Advent, as we've said, and throughout the season of Advent, we have been looking at Luke's gospel under the thematic heading of the songs and stories of Christmas in Luke. So there are two main realities that we have been tracing here in chapter 1, is that there are two announcements that are made, and then two songs that are sung in response to the announcements. So the announcements are to Zechariah and then to Mary, and then the songs that respond to the announcements are Mary's Magnificat and Zechariah's Benedictus, and we're seeing that Benedictus uh, this morning together. So two announcements and two songs, anticipating the announcements and songs of Luke chapter 2, which we'll hear about on Christmas Eve, appropriately so. Uh, but we want to think, especially this morning, about Zechariah's uh, song of praise that we find him singing, especially in verse 67 through the end of the chapter. Now, the reason why Christmas carols and Christmas songs are so appropriate is because songs and tradition and the things that we associate with Christmas, we just cherish them so much, don't we? I mean, even down to Christmas movies. Uh, we love Christmas movies. My parents were telling me this past weekend about how they're watching all the old classic Christmas movies, and whether you call a certain movie a classic movie or not is probably relative to your age and generation. But nevertheless, we all appreciate our different traditions, but wouldn't it be strange if, if all those different, say, Christmas movies got mashed up into one movie? It all just got slammed together. For example, Tiny Tim lives in Whoville, and Tiny Tim's friend George Bailey has a hard time, so he hops on the Polar Express with Clark Griswold, Kevin McAllister, and Buddy the Elf to discover the true meaning of Christmas with Charlie Brown, right? That would be weird. Or you would say, well, actually, that would be wonderful if all those things got rolled into one, right? But that kind of, that mashup sense is actually sometimes how I think we approach the Bible. We think that the Bible is just some random collection of disoriented stories, right? Disconnected from one to the other and just kind of mashed up and you throw it all in and it results in Jesus and the New Testament. When in actuality, the the Old Testament, the Bible itself, is not telling a bunch of random, disjointed stories. But the Bible from Old to New Testament is telling one glorious story of promises made and promises kept to send a Savior to fallen humanity. It doesn't matter where you are in the Bible, in any of the 66 books, the Bible is telling one glorious story. Not mashed up and random, but unified whole of God's love and the salvation revealed in Jesus Christ. And our text this morning does a really good job of reminding us the ways in which God's salvation story is told from beginning to end as one clear revealed story in Jesus Christ. Not random and disjointed, but one purposeful story. So I hope that we see that together this morning. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the scriptures together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord's Day, and we thank you for the wonderful joy of being gathered together here with the people of God, our friends and our neighbors, our family. We pray now that as we stop and open the Scriptures and give authoritative attention to the reading and proclamation of your Word, we pray now that, that your Spirit might rest upon our minds to give illumination and understanding and upon our hearts 
that you might find good soil for the seed of the Scriptures and that we might bear fruit to the glory of God in our lives. Lord, wherever we are today, we pray that your Scriptures would confront us, teach us, convict us, and renew us into the image of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's pick up the story in Luke chapter 1 at verse 57 through Zacharias Benedictus. This is the Word of God. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness, and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. Uh, Keep your Bible open there. Uh, We'll be thinking about this and also picking up the context from earlier in chapter 1. Again, this is Zacharias Benedictus. It's called the Benedictus because... In verse 68, the first word of his song is the word blessed in English. In Latin, it's Benedictus, and that's why it's called the Benedictus. But why is Zachariah singing? And who is Zachariah anyway, perhaps? Well, if you go back in chapter 1, you saw earlier in chapter 1 that Zachariah is a priest. He's a very old man who was in the temple serving God when the angel Gabriel came to him and said, Zachariah, though you are old, Zachariah, though your wife Elizabeth be old herself and you don't have any children, the Lord is going to visit you and your wife will give birth to a son. His name will be John. And Zachariah responded to Gabriel the way most men who are in their 90s would who are being told that they're going to have a son, essentially saying, look, how is this going to work? Because I don't know if you know what I know about what I know, but listen, I don't know. And Zechariah responds with this sense of, I don't, I don't know about this. And Gabriel 
brings the discipline of the Lord upon Zechariah and tells him that until this child is born, you are going to be mute. You are not going to be allowed to speak. And the reason why that discipline is given, because Gabriel essentially says to Zechariah, look, I'm the one who came to do the talking. And you are responding with all these unfaithful objections. You will be silent so you will learn the lesson to trust the God who does what seems impossible in the sight of men. Because God is doing a wonderful thing through your son, Zechariah. So can you imagine? Zechariah goes home, can't explain to his very elderly wife what's going to happen to her, and then throughout a period of nine months, still not being able to speak. And then the fulfillment comes, the child is born. At some point or another, Zechariah has communicated to Elizabeth the true name of this child. But do you notice how in the text it tells us that when they brought their son to the temple to be circumcised, as good Jewish parents would, especially them being a priestly couple, the question is given, what's his name going to be? Because the name should have been Zechariah because that's his father's name. And Elizabeth knows that that shouldn't be the name. And John, uh, the baby, is to be called John, not Zechariah. What you find then is when in verse 63... Zechariah is asked what he should be. He has to write it down because he still can't talk because the curse of God is still upon him in muteness. But when he affirms the name that Gabriel told him, then his mouth is opened and then this song of praise comes out. Now, I'm just curious. If you were, by God's discipline, made mute for nine months, what would be the first thing you would say? Thank goodness that's over. I can't. I got a few things I'd like to say now that I've been storing up. Hey, Elizabeth, let me. I got some things I want to say. Whatever the case might be. Well, no, but Zachariah is not like us because the purpose of his muteness was so that he would learn to trust, wasn't it? So that he would learn to obey. So that his first words out of his mouth aren't, "Lord, why did you do this to me? And how dare you?" but rather they are this overflowing song of praise to the God that he has learned to trust. Because sometimes you and I just need to learn to be silent and listen to what God has to say to us in the promises of his covenant. And Zechariah has learned his mouth is opened and this beautiful song comes out. He bursts into song filled with the Spirit, blessing God. In these nine months, God has taken him from fear to faith and from unbelief to dependent trust, and he begins to declare the praises of the God who does great things. His heart swells, and you and I have the benefit of his reflections. Now, what I want us to do, I just want to pick out the, the two main themes that come out of this, because Zechariah's song of praise takes us in two dimensions, and I want to make sure that we see both of them. It recalls both what is true of the past and it calls forth what will be true into the future. So there are two dimensions of time in Zechariah's Benedictus of what has been true in the past and what is going to be true into the future. Zechariah's song of praise here. So where we saw the Magnificat last week, Mary's song of praise, which sounded more like a psalm, more like a song, like a psalm in the Bible, Zechariah's words of the Benedictus, they sound more like prophecy. And actually, that's what Luke tells us in verse 67. That after his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied, saying, and then launches in. And actually, in Greek, these are just two sentences. These are two long sentences, and that's the division. And the first one is related to what is past. 
the first sentence and the first emphasis is what is past tense in verses 68 to 75. And the main point that Zechariah is singing is that in the past, God has been faithful. In the past, God has been faithful to His covenant. So, as we enter back into this, look what he says in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. Now, one of the things that's hard for you and I to appreciate about the Christmas story and appreciate about the tensions that exist in the text here is that you and I live on the other side of Jesus' life and ministry, right? We live on the other side. We live in the A.D. rather than the B.C. We look in the rearview mirror and the cross and the resurrection are there so that we already know the story. And so in many ways, we're a bit slow to appreciate the ways in which the Jewish believers who were called to trust in God's promises, just how hard it would have been for them to continue to trust in God over all the generations, over all the centuries, that because we live on this side of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, it's hard for us to get into their shoes. But I want us to try to understand what it would have been like for the Jewish believers to be looking forward in hope rather than backward like we are. They were looking forward. And what were they looking forward to? They were looking forward to the salvation that God is promising them. So notice how in verse 68... Zechariah is praising God in the past tense of God's faithfulness for His promise to, in verse 68, visit and redeem His people. Zechariah's song is singing about salvation, the forgiveness of sins that God is promising as God promises to one day deliver Israel. You find that in verse 71 and verse 74. This theme of deliverance and redemption and salvation that Israel believed that one day God was going to rescue us. One day God was going to redeem us. One day God's going to come and bring deliverance. And He's going to do it by, in verse 69, the language, raising up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. And we say, well, that doesn't translate very well to our modern culture. A horn of salvation is a reference to uh, an ornament of beauty, right? A bull, a ram, an ox, which is a symbol of strength. And a horn of salvation represents the declaration to enemies that you better flee. You better run. Because the king is arriving to cast out all opposition. The horn of salvation that is being raised in the house of David is a word both to Israel and to all nations that the one true king is coming. And Israel lived with that hope even as they were the weaker nation, were subjected to all manner of earthly powers that were making an embarrassment out of them. But one day God promised to raise up the horn of salvation in the house of David and all enemies would flee. And it is going to be, as it says, in the house of David, from the tribe of Judah. Not Zechariah's tribe, he's from Levi, but a tribe of the royal lineage of David. And at this point in Israel's history, it had been some 600 years since Israel had a king. And Zechariah's prophecy is saying that God has promised to raise up a king. 
and it's just about to come. But Israel, for many hundreds of years, constantly was saying, oh, next year, oh, next year, oh, next year, right? And those of us who are fans of particular sports teams where we have big hopes at the beginning of the year and everything falls apart by the end of the year, we say, oh, next year, oh, next year, oh, next year. So if you're a Cubs fan, you waited a patient century, right? Saying, next year, next year, next year. Just like I've been waiting for a Notre Dame National Championship since I've been born. Anyway, next year, next year, next year. Imagine 600 years of maybe next year God will send us a king. Maybe next year we won't be oppressed by our neighbors. Maybe next year our children will be able to be raised in our own homes rather than being taken from our homes and raised in a foreign nation so as not to learn our customs and sing our songs and hear of God's grace of us to us in Egypt. Imagine the, the, the sorrow and the anxiety and the hopefulness of having to wait that long. And here Zechariah is saying, God has been promising. He has promised. And now, now is the time these promises are coming to pass. And what is the promise? It's deliverance. It's salvation. It's a horn of salvation. It's in verse 72, mercy. Mercy that God is showing. Steadfast love and covenant faithfulness. Zechariah is singing a song of God's salvation. And let me be very clear to you, this is how God's salvation works. The good news of the Gospel is not that you do anything to save yourself, but that God does everything on your behalf. The good news of the gospel is mercy and grace and salvation. It's not your achievement and your good works and your own self-sufficiency. In fact, the only thing that you contribute to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. You don't lug along a suitcase of your best deeds and best efforts and say, Lord, here's what I got. Take me the rest of the way home. It doesn't work like that. Zechariah's song of salvation is a song of God's mercy, God's mercy, His salvation. And Zechariah knew it. And the issue is that because you and I live in the, in the A.D. and we don't live in this tension, we don't appreciate oftentimes the richest of the Old Testament that tells us this story through many generations. Zechariah's song singing about the past is that he is saying that God is making good on all His promises. God is making sure of all His promises. Look how He says in verse 70 that God is doing this salvation and mercy as He, verse 70, spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old. Meaning, just like He told us. Just like He told us from the prophets. And it even goes further back than that. As old as the promise to Abraham in verse 73. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 where God told Abraham, Abraham, I will going to bless you with a land to inherit and, and, and children and posterity and a blessing that will go from you to all nations. And really this promise that God has made goes further back than the prophets, further back than Abraham. God's promise goes all the way back to the garden when Adam and Eve first sinned and God said, though you have sinned, I will Cover your nakedness and shame. And one day, one long day away, I will send you a seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And Zechariah is thinking about all of those promises and saying all these generations, all of these centuries, God has kept His promises every single word. Finally unveiling the long-promised hope of the Gospel. So, do you struggle to be patient? Imagine waiting this long. 
you can all imagine whether you yourself was the child in the back seat or whether now your children sit in the back seat and ask that famous question, are we there yet, right? Are we there yet? When Zechariah opens his mouth to declare this truth, he is effectively saying, we have never been closer. It's just right here that God is going to fully and finally do all that He has promised in the revelation of Jesus Christ, the hope of the ages. And Zechariah the priest, who has spent his whole life as a priest anticipating what is going to be yet to come, the final sacrifice, the hope that was placed in something that was yet future, he is now able to say what was a hoped-for reality in the past is now coming true in the present. God's promises are coming true. So this is what we should learn from Zechariah in this first part of the song, that God's Word is true. Let me say it again to you. God's Word is true. Every single word. His promises are sure. His covenant is trustworthy. Everything He says to you is right. And in our hearts, we should say with Zechariah, blessed be the God of covenant mercy who has given to me promises that I am called to trust in, I am called to believe in. And again, you and I live in the A.D. side of the cross and resurrection, but there are still things that we're waiting for. Just like Jewish believers were waiting for the first appearance of the Messiah, we are faithfully waiting for the second appearance of the Messiah when He will come and on that day cast out the sting of death forever. You and I who trudge along suffering under the weight of the curse still bring about the sting of death are waiting for a time when death is going to be fully and finally cast out forever. We're waiting for that, aren't we? Every funeral we go to and any funeral that we attend and every time we remember our dearly departed loved ones, it stings to us again to say this is not right. This is not right. Something must come to set this fully and finally right. And Jesus Christ will come, but not yet. So we wait. And God's Word calls us to wait with hope. So if Zechariah could wait with patient hope, trusting and you and I live on the other side of the cross and resurrection, awaiting the second appearance of Jesus Christ, then you and I have even more reason to patiently wait with hopeful trust, saying, Lord, every single word you say is true. Every single promise you make is good. And I will wait for it. Many people that you know will not come to that conclusion. Many people that you know will come to the conclusion that God's Word is not good, helpful, right, accurate, or trustworthy. And God is calling you to yet trust Him. So, Zechariah's song focuses on what is true of the past as it prepares to look forward into the future. And now this second part of the song from verses 60, 76 to 79 is talking about the future. Zechariah's song transfers from the promises that God gave Israel in the past to the promises that were now going to be realized through Zechariah's son named John. So look again at verse 76. He says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. Zechariah's song is now focused on his son, his firstborn son, whose name is John, who we know as John the Baptist. 
Zechariah is saying, son, this is what will be true of you. This is how God will use you. This is God's purpose for you in the unfolding plan of salvation in preparing the way for the Messiah. And notice that that's the language here. The focus is on you, child, but you exist to do something else, namely to prepare. Verse 76, the end of verse 76, you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways. Zechariah is using the language of Isaiah 40, verse 3, to prepare the way of the Lord from Malachi chapter 3, that my messenger will come to prepare the people for him, that he is the forerunner of the Messiah, verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. John the Baptist, the same John the Baptist, whom it is written about in John's Gospel, chapter 1, where it says this, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the true light, which is, of course, Jesus Christ. I want you to pick up this theme that Zechariah is saying to his son. Son, you exist for a mighty purpose. God has miraculously brought you into the world to do a wonderful thing. And the thing is a ministry of preparation to prepare the way for the Messiah who is still yet to come. Son, you are the Messiah's servant. You are the one that goes before Him as a forerunner to prepare the way for the Lord. Let me give a very clear application of this here. We might assume that Zechariah would think, boy, it would be great if my child was the Messiah. But Zechariah doesn't think that, does he? Zechariah knows his son's place to be a servant of the one who is yet to come. I think this matters for those of us who are in the influence of children. Whether they're our children, our grandchildren, whether they're our nieces or our nephews, or whether they're the kids at church. You and I need to be called to raise children and nurture children in covenant faith with Zechariah's message to his son, John. Son, you are a servant of the Messiah. You are not the Messiah. The hope of all the world is not in you. Now, follow me with what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that our children aren't unique and special and wonderful and lovely. In fact, I love all of our children. I love my child more than I love your child, though, and you should expect that. But we should be raising our children in such a way as to say to them, though you are unique, though you are special, though you are wonderful, there is one who is greater than you. Our children need to be raised and reared in covenant love and faithfulness to know that Christ is the greatest. John is raised by Zechariah to know that truth. You are a servant of the greater light. Do you see how this language comes in verse 78? Because of the tender mercy of our God, the sunrise is going to visit us. And when the sun rises, the stars go out of view. Because the sun outshines the stars. So therefore, in the metaphor, our children may be as stars declaring the glory of God, but when the sun rises, the light of the stars fades out because the sun is greater than everything else. When the sun shines, the stars go out of view. This is the picture, I think, of covenant nurture that we should be passing on to our children, that your life isn't actually about you. It's about Jesus. And how radical would that be? 
Zachariah himself at this point is already an old man. And we can only wonder what, what it would have been like for Zechariah the priest to rear his son John, who is himself in his 90s and his wife in his 90s. We have no idea how long Zechariah lived to see his son John grow up. We've got no idea. But what we do know is that Zechariah, John's father, left a lasting impression of faithfulness upon his son because it is John the Baptist that we find in the opening chapters of Jesus' earthly ministry who is the first one to point to Jesus and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's John the Baptist who says in John 3.30, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. Because John is reared in the knowledge that what matters most of all is the knowledge of salvation, the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And, and our children need to be reared in that as well. That Jesus must increase and I must decrease. Here you have this beautiful model of Zechariah saying, John, my son, your life is going to be utterly unique. I'm not saying that you and I are raising John the Baptists. I'm saying we need to raise faithful covenant children who know that verse 79 says that those who sit in darkness will receive peace and light because the Messiah is going to come cast out the shadow of death. My child will not cast out the shadow of death. Your child will not cast out the shadow of death. Jesus Christ will. And we want them to trust in Him. Zechariah's song is calling our attention in those two directions. Promises kept and a salvation to be revealed, which is what the Christmas season is all about, that we would fix our eyes upon Jesus, that we would see in Christ the dawn of redeeming grace, that we would see the sun rising and the shadow of death being cast out, that we ourselves, in the words of verse 79, might be led into the ways of peace. Th this is what we mean when we talk about the true meaning of Christmas and Jesus being the reason for the season, because Christmas is about the gospel. Christmas is about God sending His Savior into the world. And Zechariah knows it, so he says his song is, Blessed be the Lord, the Savior. And for you and I to get the most out of our Advent season and to enjoy the depth of the wonders of God's mystery, what must also be on our lips and upon our hearts is those same words, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, that You have sent Your Son into the world, a Savior for sinners. We thank You that You sent John into the world to prepare the way for him, and we thank You for his ministry of calling us to repentance as we have been called to in this very service. Lord, may our hearts be a highway ready for the Savior. May the mountains of our pride be cast down so that the plain would be level in preparation for His coming. Oh Lord, no matter where we are today, may our hearts cling to the truth of the promises of Your Gospel in Jesus Christ and His free salvation by faith alone. Bless us, Lord, that we might receive it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit Edgington epc.org. May God bless and keep you.